Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans 12, 1 through 3, and 9 through 18. It's slightly different than what is printed in your bulletin. <clears throat> Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to the Lord. Hey, just off the bat, I'd like to, um, being as it's Veterans Day week, I'd like to honor our veterans who are in our midst. If you're a veteran, would you stand up? Oh, some we have, oh, is Matt out? Oh my gosh, he's not here. He's teaching, look at that, our veteran is teaching Sunday school. And I'll see Bob Chapman and if Ken McDonald, if you're on the phone, on the, uh, on, those are on Zoom, we want to honor you and thank you for your service. And you see Matt out there, say, so we tempted Matt to honor you. Um, Lord, we just uh, bring this time into your hands. Father, we, uh, as your people, gather in worship now to think on your word. And we ask that you would speak to us about it, Lord. You know what each one of us needs to hear. You know where we're at. And I pray you'll speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, Andy, I'm actually going to ask you to go ahead and flip around because I got... Thanks. Normally, I'm always speaking extemporaneous, and I got like a text today. Kind of crazy, huh? So hopefully, I'll stay on track better than normally. We'll see. And let me, let me warn you, we're going to get a little political today. You know, don't be scared. I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm just going to poke you a bit to be a little more generous with folks who think differently than you do. So let's talk, uh, so it's a challenge. Let's talk about uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Clarence Thomas. 
Yeah? I'm guessing I got the juices going for a few folks. There are probably people here with kind of strong opinions about them, potentially. Uh, one, one or not, or both of them. Um, or not, don't have it yet, you see, or cheating. Um, they're, uh, for those who don't know who they are, they're Supreme Court justices, and probably on, you know, two ends of the general, you know, uh, judicial philosophy spectrum. Um, you may have heard an interview from uh, Justice Sotomayor, who did the National Convention of the American Constitution Society in June, which is a progressive group, uh, not politically neutral, which I think is important to this point, too. You know, it's not a politically uh, very progressive group. Her former law clerk and uh, asked her questions, as did members of her audience. So now we'll take a look at that. Um, the, she was asked by her law clerk, how do you go about cultivating relationships with people with whom you really, really disagree. And she says, with every single person that I meet, particularly if I disagree with them, I try to find the goodness in them. I try to find what part of them can we communicate with together. And so I may have used, and I've used as an example, my relationship with Justice Clarence Thomas. I suspect that I have probably disagreed with him more than any other justice, that we have not joined each other's opinions more than anybody else. And keep it on there for a second, Andy, don't go forward. Um, and I, I was a little confused by what she meant by that. She's not saying um, that in a pejorative sense, she's disagreeable, you know, or they really disagree with, uh, he said in terms of their opinions, you know, when a uh, Supreme Court justice writes an opinion, they sign on to each other. And she said, most likely they've signed on to each other's opinions, the least of any two on the Supreme Court justice. And let me add, she knows the audience she's speaking to probably has pretty negative feelings about Justice Thomas, who's one of the more extreme voices on the court, but she continues with that in mind of her audience. She says, and yet Justice Thomas is the one justice in a building that literally knows every employee's name, every one of them. And not only does he know their names, he remembers their families' names and histories. He's the first one who will go up to someone when you're walking with them and say, is your son okay? How's your daughter doing in college? He's the first one when my stepfather died, sent me flowers in Florida. He is a man who cares deeply about the court as an institution, about the people who work there. He has a different vision than I do about how to help people and about their responsibilities to help themselves. I often said to people, Justice Thomas believes that every person can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I believe that some people can't get to their bootstraps without help. I believe that some people can't get to their bootstrap. Uh, they need someone to help them lift their foot up so that they can reach those bootstraps. That's a very different philosophy of life. But I think we share a common understanding about people and kindness towards them. That's why I can be friends with him and still continue our daily battle over our differences of opinions and cases but you really can't begin to understand an adversary unless you step away from looking at their views as motivated in bad faith. I was gonna say it's the word of the Lord, but it's not. It's just the end of a quote from Justice Sotomayor. After I listened to her, I must say my respect for both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas grew. Um, you know, her gracious response um, honored Justice Thomas before her audience, 
and I think in doing so, honored herself as well. Um, and she was speaking to a group which probably would have relished in any hint of negativity. And I say that not because that group is particularly bad, but that is the divisive climate we're living in, isn't it? We are quick to believe the worst of everyone and almost want to hear it. You know, quick to jump into camps of fear-filled echo chambers. You know, The Atlantic ran an article um, somewhat recently, and they were, you know, technically they say about couples, right? That couples used to struggle with interfaith marriages and things like that. They say the struggle now is not interfaith marriages, it's interpolitical marriages. That people feel like they can't be in relationships with people with different political views. That's the world we kind of live in right now. Um, one of the reasons to talk about it today in church is we've just came out of a very contentious election. We're heading into Thanksgiving and Christmas, and uh, many people are actually nervous about family reunions <laughs> and gathering with friends that they'll become political. It's amazing how many people actually have anxiety about it, you know? Um, I think COVID got us out of the practice of actually being in social situations and being able to navigate it. We're all in our own little circles where we're happy. So I thought it might be a good, a good opportunity to check in to what the Bible has to say about how we might walk in this divisive climate we're living in now. So we're going to look at a passage from the book of Romans, which John uh, read, and see Paul's exhortation to that church that was under uh, the strain of a lot of pressure and divisiveness. And then we'll ask ourselves how we might apply that into our lives now, and this time, and into our church. So, to the book of Romans. Uh, what was happening in the Roman church that precipitated this letter? Well, Romans is a deeply theological letter, uh, Paul's ultimate treatise. It deals most prominently with the nature of the gospel, and particular issues of faith and work and grace, and uh, then specifically with the promises to Israel. There seemed to be divisions between Jewish and Gentile believers in the church, uh, which were not simply theological, but had real implications about how you should be living, the nature of the law. Um, there was a persecution from Rome. You can actually see exhortations about how they're to interact with the state. You can feel the pressure in this letter. Uh, the parts about Israel, again, were not simply about the law, but larger about the Jewish people as a whole. What is going on? And you can tell there's all these house churches and these even factions within their house churches of different, like, you know, these uh, around the whole church. So very divisive, very split up. It's not the kind of divisiveness and hostility you see like in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, but you can see it's underneath this and Paul is addressing it. All these pressures on the outside, different convictions on the inside, conflict. And Paul spends the first eight chapters of the book reminding us about the foundations of salvation by faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on the cross and the incredible implications of that, of what God's done for us. Then he spends chapters 9 through 11 helping, you know, explain from the scriptures what is going on with Israel. In fact, those, it's uh, so many of his scriptural quotations are like boom, 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 boom in chapters 9 through 11. And he's mainly, it's mainly a big problem because like, hold on, the fulfillment of the scriptures is here in Jesus being the Messiah, but only a remnant of Jewish people believe? And most of the church is Gentiles? What is going on with that? I still find it perplexing. But yeah. Uh, um, but then he turns to chapter 12 and starts applying all this theology into their context as a church community. How are they to be with one another amidst all these divisions, amidst all this conflict, amidst all this pressure from the outside? 
So the, fir verse, the first three verses kind of frame the thing and laid its foundation for this section. And it starts off the bat, you got it? Um, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and here's the key line, in view of God's mercy, in view of what we have talked about for all these chapters, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's your true worship. I mean, the idea is that this is like the picture of a uh, burnt offering. You know, instead of offering a sacrifice on the altar, that is what you do with your life and your body. You offer it to God to serve him, Lord. Everything I have is yours. You put it on the altar and offer it to God. And I might say, what does that mean exactly? What does it look like? It's interesting because in the next verse, it's a bit counterintuitive that you think that this would be such a key aspect of offering your body as a living sacrifice. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the idea of his good, pleasing, and perfect will, basically, if we're going to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God, we've got to know how to live in this world. What does that actually look like, right? You know, he says, actually, you need, it has to do with what happens up here and how you think in your mind. He says, you know, don't be conformed. Don't shape the way you think with the way the world does. He says, actually, be transformed. That's where we get the word metamorphosis from, the Greek underneath. It's like your, your mind and your thinking and your insight undergoes a complete metamorphosis, like from a caterpillar to a butterfly, to go back into what God made us to be. And when, you, when your mind is where God wants to be and you begin to look at the world the way God wants you to, then he says, then you'll understand almost naturally what God's will is. It's an amazing thought. Rather than following all these different rules and things on the outside, you're going to think the way he does and naturally understand it. And that's the idea of the, the transformation of your mind. And then you start to see in verse 3 an immediate taste of what's going on in this church. He says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly than you ought. Uh, high, I don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. But think of yourself with sober judgment. You can start to see that this is something's going on. You know, people be, are pretty high on themselves. They're pretty high on the way they think about it. There's divisions like that, and I'm looking down at one another. Um, you know, so you, you know, it says, rather, you need to think soberly about who you are, your weaknesses, the incredible grace that's been shown to you. And that, that tendency we have to look down, to think we're better, to be divisive in our thoughts, especially in a church which is divisive like that. You know, they're thinking, I'm thinking right, that person's thinking wrong, this kind of stuff. Um, and he goes on, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not skipping over this section, but it's all about, he says, we get these gifts, and the gifts are not designed for you to think I'm something special with that. It's all designed to fit together in the body, and it's all for the blessing of everyone else, you know, and you humbly submit all that you are and serve zealously everyone in your community together and in the world with, uh, with the gifts you have. And then he goes on uh, past that section and offers almost a series of, I don't know if you call them maxims or something, there's a quick little sayings. Boop, 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 boop. It's almost like Proverbs, you know? Uh, but they're, what you'll find about most of these quick little things you should be doing is they seem to be in the context of other people and of the community and how you are to be towards them. And that's what we really wanna hit on some of these things. Um, in verse 10 and 11, it says, um, we up there? Good. Thank you, Andy. It says, be devoted to one another in love. And actually, if you're looking, you know, um, 
<laughs> it has all these words for love in the midst of that word. You can't even see it. You know, in English, it doesn't. You can't even see it. But just this idea of, you know, the incredible love God has shown for you. It just manifests itself. You are in utter devotion to one another. You have this commitment towards one another in your community. Be devoted to one another in love. It's just, and and honor one another above yourself. How much more that is than looking down at another person, right? To honor means to literally add weight to someone. You know, that these people you are, man, you make them higher than you. You're harder than looking down and thinking they're nothing, man. Every single person, you, this is how you want to be with everybody in your community with. You just want to honor them for who they are. You know, they are loved by God and they are precious. You hold them in honor. Be devoted to one, uh, all of them in love. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And that's an amazing, even like, it's like your spirit has, it should be bubbling over, even says, like boiling over with this kind of zealousness, which is played out in the way you're acting to these people who are made in the image of God in your midst, in your community, in a powerful way. And he goes on, share with the Lord's people who are in need. You know, practice hospitality, which is, hospitality is an amazing thing, right? We, we're all beneficiaries of God's hospitality. He opens up his world and he gives to us and allows us to live in it. So you should practice to others. Open up your lives. I think about uh, foster, you know, foster system. That, that, that's about ultimately, I mean, hospitality is such a funny little word that we sit over there, but it's really opening your lives and saying, letting people live in the blessings of all that I have. Come into my house. And uh, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, which again gives you the feeling of the, what was happening in the church. This was a church that had fire happening on the outside, persecution coming. And what's the, what is the thing when people are cursing you? What's the natural thing to do? Curse them. Fight them. And you say, no, actually you bless them. Bless, do not curse. They are still valuable in God's sight. They are loved by him, and no matter what they do, you act with the mind of God towards them. You see them as God sees them. Incredibly challenging statement. We know this verse, but this is so challenging. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, which is, they're trying their best here, but the idea is, it's almost this, it's that idea like I almost see it in Philippians of being at one mind together. Be one mind, you know, be like-minded as it says other places. Be like-minded with one another. Be in harmony with them. Don't be proud. And again, you see that little thing, it's hitting, right? Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with those. Low position. Don't be conceited. You see, there's this real lack of thing where we're seeing ourselves better as other. We're seeing them lower. We're the ones in the in. They're the out. And then the verses I really want to land on in 17, 18, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And here we go. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, to the extent it's possible. It's not always possible, is it? It's not always possible. Live at peace with everyone. Seek to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And that is not being a people pleaser. I think it's really important to put this in context because what was Paul's ministry like? Was, was Paul's ministry running around and making sure he's making everyone happy and making sure the authorities like what he does? 
No, he ticked off people endlessly, right? He gets thrown in jail. He was, you know, standing up. He's causing whole riots, right? So it's that person who still says, so it's, it's you know, I'm going to do what's right and stand for what's right and proclaim the gospel. And the, but to the extent it was dependent on me, I wanted to be at peace with everybody. I wanted to do what was right. And part of that, you can see the con direct context is repaying evil for evil. He was persecuted. He was that. He goes, I would not repay evil. No matter what they did, no matter what any of those people said, no matter how they tried to attack me, I was not repaying evil for evil. Not one bit. I'm going to do my extent to do, I'm going to do what's right before God, what's right before them. To the extent it depends on me, I'm going to be at peace with everybody, no matter where they're coming from. It's all the more of a statement coming from Paul as to what it is, you know, because it's not a compromise, is it? It's a commitment, though. It's not always possible, but it is always your desire. You do not desire conflict. You don't. This is what the church is to be like. The exhortation is to bless one another, care for one another, honor one another, be at peace with one another, rejoice with one another. And don't, don't assume Paul is giving these exhortations because they're doing this stuff. If they're already doing it, I'm doubting Paul would think, hey, this, is, this is a needed exhortation. No. Or, or don't assume this is obvious and easy. If you're looking at this stuff and going, oh, this is obvious and easy, I don't think you're understanding the extent to which it's being exhorted to us. No, honoring each other was going to take work. Doing your best to be at peace with one another is going to take work. Sometimes you recognize it's just not going to be possible, but as far as it depends on you, do it. Now, as I think about these exhortations, does it feel so far from the divisive culture we're living in now? Do these exhortations feel like to a different time? I feel them very much in the current culture. We, I think we're living in a culture now which doesn't seem to value being at peace with one another all that much necessarily. They might say, what do these have to do with what's happening in our country, right? We have this divisive country. What are we supposed to do about that? What control do we have over what our country is going to do, especially as we sit in this little room now? Right, as far as it depends on you. I don't think we're going to, you are not going to fix this whole country. <laughs> You're not going to fix your whole cultures. Um, but as far as it depends on us, um, I think the church of God and churches is supposed to model how the world's supposed to be. You know, we're supposed to be a little kingdom of a God, which is a light to the whole world. And in some ways, I, I'm fully convinced that, you know, in some ways, the way we love one another, despite our differences, should be modeled in churches, which then play an attractive and healing, you know, uh, witness to the world. You may say, I'm a, I'm a dreamer, but I'm thoroughly convinced of that. And look, and we, and we also, just personally, we can't control what every church in our country does. We can't. But you know something? You can do it right here and now. We can do it in this place, as far as it depends on you, if it is possible. Um, we're actually a very diverse um, congregation politically. I don't even know if all of you guys know how diverse we are. I do. <laughs> and uh, we're not all in the same place, let me tell you that. And I actually think that's a, a wonderful thing, especially at a time as the church is increasingly going in little, their own little chambers. The people are choosing churches by their politics. It's kind of scary, but it's happening a lot. You know, as opposed to coming into church and having your views shaped and transformed by them, you're picking ones that hold your views. 
Think about that. That's not, a, that's not a smart way to be. Talk about a way to be transformed. That is not a way to be transformed by the gospel. That is a way to be conformed. Um, and certainly, the, in the same way the outside world was pressuring the Roman church, we as a community can feel the pressures of our divisive world, can't we? You can feel the pressures on your walls pushing in. And, uh, but I think we can be like the church Paul's exhorting us to. Now, somebody's probably here worried, um, are there problems and divisions in our church I don't know about? He just said we're diverse, you know, oh, no, you know. No, nobody's fighting, it's okay, you know. We're not actually very, we actually think do a heck of a job of, of, of it not being an issue. You know, that we just love each other and see that a love for Jesus is far more important than our political differences. But I would say I don't think we're really good at engaging in these hard questions actually in our midst. Uh, I'd like to see us get better at it. You know, um, I think it gives us an opportunity when you have hard conversations to go deeper in your relationships. I think, again, it helps model to the world that we can have differences and it doesn't need to divide us and we can still love each other and care for each other and actually learn from one another. You may be saying, okay, I see that theoretically, <laughs> but really practically, can we do this, you know? Um, you know, I think when uh, people think oftentimes of folks in the other political camp, you know, it's often like, well, you understand there's really dangerous stuff they believe. You hear that, you know, that you don't understand this is not just, we're not just trying to be nice. This, there's stuff at stake here. And you know what's amazing? I, I personally hear that from both sides. Both sides, there's real reasons we can't be generous in our thinking with one another. Uh, bull. Yeah. I'm sorry, that was not in my script. <laughs> I could tell you, I've benefited from talking from the most extreme people, and I can sit in a conversation with them. And you may be asking, which side am I on? Uh, which so you know what camp it is, so you can take everything I say and you know, put it through that filter of the camp I'm in. Listen, I disagree with everybody, okay? <laughs> it's the gift, all right? I am, I am contrarian by nature. I, can, I have the capacity to disagree with anybody I talk to at any point. So it's, um, I, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's from the Holy Spirit, it's, but it is the way I am. And... Uh, but I can tell you, it does force me to have to think generously of most everyone's position. You know, uh, and I, you know, because I, since I tend to disagree with them all, by the way, I disagree with myself most of the time, so it's just <laughs> part of the thing. Um, I actually think the last line in Justice Sotomayor's um, talk there is a, is a really challenging suggestion and a healthy one. She said, um, you really can't begin to understand an adversary unless you step away from looking at their views as motivated in bad faith. You can't really begin to understand them until you step away from looking at their views as motivated by bad faith. This is one of the problems. We tend to see people we differ with are motivated by bad faith. You need to see them as being, um, essentially that they're, you, know, you may think they're thinking a dangerous way, but you've got to start in the place they're at least trying to do what's right. They're trying to think right about it. That really changes that person. This is the person's not an enemy. You know, they differ from you. And they may differ in significant things that have things at stake. But you gotta start in a place they're at least trying to do what's right and trying to think about it. And that in turn makes them open. You remember when uh, Nate Odie spoke here in, in, uh, in April from uh, Thinker Analytics? 
he talked about being as generous as possible with people intellectually. Being as generous as you can. Oftentimes they talk about, build, you know, we build uh, straw man arguments. Basically, here's what the other person thinks is a straw man, so you can blow on it and it goes down. You're like, oh, what a fool. He said, what do you, what do you say? Oh, gosh. He said, instead, build strong man arguments. <laughs> Take their argument and build the strongest version of it you possibly can. And that's the one you interact with, not with their weak one. Interact with a strong one. So what does that look like? Well, let me give you an example of something I do. You know, when I think about um, people who are on conservatives and liberals or progressives, and you want to think they're acting in good faith, that they're keeping with the heart of those convictions. So just give you an example of how I think about it. When I think of a progressive or liberal, you know, uh, what is at the heart of what's driving them? I think it's, as it's classically understood, it's what a desire to make things better, to progress. Um, to, uh, you know, a progressive's looking at the things and looking at things in the world and wonders, hey, how can we do it better? How can we stop the bad stuff's happening? And they want to try to make it actually happen. Um, you know, try to change things for the better. I don't think that's that radical. Um, it's pretty noble and reasonable, I think. Um, now, does that mean they're always wise about what needs changing and how to change it? No, of course not. In fact, it's always going to be a problem with folks who want to change things. You're actually going to be wrong a lot. It just happens. And uh, can you tend to be critical if you're always trying to change things? Sure, because you want to change things. So you've got to be critical of that which you want to change. But to them, it's just being honest. I think there's a sense of, well, we know it doesn't work now. So what's the downside of try, trying something new? It's not radical. And what about conservatives? What's in their heart? I always go back to what I heard a political theorist say. They said the heart of conservative philosophy is the defense of what is. The heart of conservative philosophy is the defense of what is. Um, conservatives conserve what we have now. Conservation's not a bad thing, you know? Conservatives see value in what we have. They think about how we got here, and they're thankful for it. They don't think it's perfect, but they have grace in that sense. Don't forget the many blessings that surround you or take them for granted. Be careful before you just throw things away. You don't know what you're going to end up with. That, you know, that's a pretty reasonable thing to think, isn't it? Can you argue with that? Um, now, does that mean they'll have a tendency to resist change at times? Sure. Uh, can they view things with rose-colored rose glasses and often tolerate things they shouldn't? Sure. It's intrinsic to the problem. You see, there's, there's problems which are intrinsic to both of them. They're always going to be present to those on um, both sides. Ironically, when you're very grateful for things, for what you have, you can actually be slow to make needed changes. Right? But both are reasonable. Um, now, you may say, okay, well, that's all nice, but Democrats or Republicans aren't like those rosy descriptions. Yeah, whatever. Um, but in my, you know, but, but in my personal uh, political philosophy, I think any time things go into become institutional, become entered into some big political machine, it oftentimes becomes about power. Um, it becomes about tribalism and broken leaders and broken people gathering together. And our broken world, that will often be a mess. So basically, I'm not surprised. 
You know, anyone who's like shocked going, oh, I can't believe these people aren't acting righteously or in keeping with their principles. Really? That surprises you? That <laughs> does not surprise me. My theology informs me and says people are always going to do that. If they're actually, if they're really keeping with their principles and really acting as servant leaders, that might be against my, my theology. Really? They're able to do that in this world? As broken as they are? That's pretty remarkable. Good for them. But I'll tell you something, the person who's in front of me, who I'm in a conversation with, doesn't control all of that. That person is small and broken and limited. They're looking out and trying to figure out how to live in this world, how to be in this world, how to think about it. You know, I figure I can allow them space to try and figure that out. I can allow them uh, grace to be anxious about what they see in the world grace to get it wrong. So I don't know about you, but I know I need space and grace from the people I'm talking to. I better be willing to offer it to them as well. I actually think that beyond simply tolerating and trying to understand, be understanding of people who think differently, in a church especially, it can be an opportunity. Uh, it can also, you know, it can be uh, hard to have good discussions in our current culture with people who think differently than you. It's very hard to actually have those discussions. But I think this is how we learn and grow. I talked about that. It's an amazing, think about how what an amazing opportunity it should be to be united with someone in the body of Christ, you know, who's committed to honoring you, rejoicing with you, mourning with you, loving you, extending love to you. What an amazing thing to be able to have a conversation on contentious political matters with them. Isn't that like set it up for success? Isn't it set it up to go ahead and have a difference? And it's okay. You can actually learn and grow in a very safe environment. That's my dream for the church. I think we sit there and say, hey, man, we know what Jesus did for both of us, so we ought to have a heck of a lot of grace for one another. We ought to be able to give each other space to be wrong, oh, you know, and, be, and have space to not be so certain that you're right. Right? It's part of our theology should inform both those things. You know, I have actually a lot of these types of discussions with Daniel, we are all over the map on various issues, and we're both pretty opinionated. He's probably listening. You know it. I am too. And I can tell you there's lots of times we both walk away from discussions like this, and we have not changed our views one iota. But a whole lot more times we've given each other something to think about. It's been a blessing to be challenged in the way you think about it, force you to kind of view things a little differently. But the key is that is that I know he knows without a fact that I care for him deeply. And I know he cares for me deeply. And we both know we're just trying to follow Jesus in this world and we're utterly devoted to him and love him. And we don't expect to have it all exactly right right now. But that shapes everything. And that allows that, you know, it allows for the conversation, the differences to be over here. But then we walk over here and we serve the Lord together. And even if he wasn't a believer, well, he probably wouldn't be on staff if he wasn't a believer. But imagine a person who's not, you know, um, I could still look at them as someone the Lord loves and cares about deeply, you know, uh, and, and act in accord with that. Paul says, as much as it depends on me, be at peace with everyone, to bless those who persecute you. To the extent that it depends on you, that's what you can do. Not everything depends on you, right? And oftentimes it's not possible. That's okay. But to the extent it's on you, 
<laughs> I think the call from God is fairly clear. You know, um, Maybe you want to practice some of this before you head off to the trials of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Some of you guys have very peaceful things, some of you not so peaceful. Um, Thursday night, our mosaic discussion on Zoom, 7 to 8.30, we're talking about some political stuff and racism and such things like that. Um, wouldn't it be nice to hear some very different perspectives from people who are committed to honoring you and to loving Jesus? Yeah, um, I think it's great. You know, good practice for that. So I hope you'll join in. But let's remember, in overall, as, as I come down with this thing, be generous with people. Um, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Bless those who persecute you. And as far as it depends on us, be at peace with everyone. Let's pray. Our Lord, we uh, thank you and praise you, Lord. You are the only one who sees and knows exactly what's going on, beginning to end. And you know our hearts and you see it, Lord. And we do want to have our, uh, not be conformed to the patterns of this world and act the way the rest of this world does in the midst of these important issues that we divide us. Help us to have transformed minds that we might be able to uh, think as you do, be able to know what is good and pleasing and right in your sight. Let us be devoted to one another in love, to honor one another, to rejoice with one another, to be able to bless those who uh, speak badly to us. Give us grace, Lord, not to repay evil for evil. Oh, Lord, we want to be your lights in the midst of this world, Lord. And I pray not just for our church, but for your church nationally, Lord, that we would be a light of healing to our country, that you would work powerfully in your people, Lord, to bring them close to you. We bless you and praise you in the name of Jesus.